When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a different Blog Talk Radio. If you feel there's more to life than iPhones and iPads and mindless consumerism, if you're open to receiving information in all forms in any number of ways, if organized religion, organized political movements, and any kind of collectivism doesn't just quite cut it for you, if you engage in critical thinking, if you think for yourself, if you have peace and love in your heart and Jack Daniels in your bloodstream, if you believe that seriousness is a disease, if you're curious, then come, let us go on a journey together as we explore the outer limits of inner truth. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, we have a very special guest, an individual who's a legend on Wall Street and an individual who's helped thousands of people. His name is George Saris, and before we discuss who Mr. George Saris is and why we're featuring on tonight's program, I want to bring this to your attention. Is money really the root of all evil? For centuries, many individuals and societies have said yes to that question. For centuries, many individuals and societies have also talked about the glory and honor it is of being poor and how only the poor get to heaven. In America, a mainstream ideal is to demonize the wealthy and have contempt for those who are financially well off. Now, friends, I can't speak for anyone else on this program, but I passionately believe that those affirmations listed above are the biggest bunch of crap that the world has ever known and ever came into human existence. How can money be the root of all evil and not evil be the root of all evil? Greed, deception, murder, they're all symptoms of evil, not money. And what is money? It seems that money is the power to purchase life experiences like travel, clothes, houses, hookers, Good schools for their kids, nice hotel rooms, booze. You know, money is the currency of this life. And how is longing for that and having an abundance of that evil? And what is the glory and honor there is in being poor? My old teacher said that poverty is the greatest restriction that a person can impose upon themselves. And how is having a lack of, or being in the lack of financial abundance honorable? How does mismanaging your finances get you a free pass into heaven? I want to know. It all comes back to our guest tonight, Mr. George Harris. George is a very successful individual, and as a result of his passion, dedication, and focus, he cemented a life of being in the flow of financial abundance, and he retired in his early 40s. George is a super nice guy. He would do anything to help anyone in a heartbeat, and he's completely authentic. I wanted to offer you a glimpse into his life because I feel that George is a great example of positive affirmations about money and living in the flow of financial abundance and living, experiencing all that life has to offer. I met George in my 20s when we worked together on something called the New York Underground Comedy Festival, which lasted eight years and launched the careers of hundreds of comedians, giving them primetime exposure to major networks and producers. I observed how George treated everyone from the CEOs to the people mopping the floor with the same respect. I observed how George's passion got to other people and it made them really passionate. It was a positive version of an epidemic that spread very quickly. I observed how people would work their asses off for George because they respected him and because he believed in them. I also observed how George wouldn't hesitate to offer advice when needed and he loved giving people the tools that they needed to get to where they needed to be. Enjoying life and financial abundance and experiencing 
abundance in all aspects of life seems to be something that many people wish to have. And they'll buy books, and they'll go to seminars, and they'll even consult with others to attain it. Maybe sometimes people can learn how to have those experiences and be in flow with abundance by observing others who are master at it. And George is one of those masters. So without further ado, the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show proudly presents Chapter 49, Mr. George Saris. Today in the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, we welcome a gentleman who I consider brilliant. His name is George Saris. He was born in New York City, grew up in New Rochelle, came from a middle-class background, and in a very short uh, number of years, he sat on the board of the New York Stock Exchange, worked his way up to the top, was there for 10 years, and retired in a very short period of time. And since he's retired, he's done a lot of wonderful things. He started an event called the New York Underground Comedy Festival and gave hundreds, if not thousands, of struggling comedians a platform to express themselves and to reach new levels in their careers, and they did. And George was responsible for a lot of people getting a lot of breaks during that period of time. He's also done a lot of work with bands, music, and he's continued to be successful in various industries that he's delved into. And the reason why I'm bringing him to your attention today is because I feel that George has an energy and a dynamic that allows him to be successful across multiple areas, multiple fields, and his ideals are pretty simplistic, and at the same time, he's also a very nice guy. So without further ado, we welcome to the program now Mr. George Saris. George, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and honor for you to have me, Ryan. Oh, thank you. And uh, George, you're an individual with no education, no college education, who ended up holding a seat on the New York Stock Exchange for 10 years before retiring in your 19, in the 40s. How did you do it? Well, it's so hard to explain how something like that happens. I just, I, in high school, I wasn't a very good student. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So my father, who was on Wall Street, got me a job as a messenger at the New York Stock Exchange. So I went down to the New York Stock Exchange and started as messenger and really liked the excitement, really liked the energy and just the craziness and people depending on you kind of thing. And I just kind of worked my way up from there. I, I found out that uh, after about six months as a messenger, one of the member firms noticed me and asked me if I'd like a job as a clerk. So I went from 250 a week to $160 a week to 250 a week after six months. And uh, just, I just kind of just went from there. Um, so, really I mean, how, no what, did, what did you do as a messenger? Like, what made you stand out as a messenger? That that, that was someone's like, oh my god, you know, this is this messenger. Well, I was just, I like to, I'm, you know, the way I operate. I see someone's hand up, I run over, and then I see three hands up. I got to be able to do three things at once. I got to be able to do four things at once, and it just keeps snowballing and snowballing. But I, what I found out was, and then people down there really liked me, likability is A, number one, I think, in uh, life. Uh, people think it's who you know, what you know, kissing a little butt uh, kind of thing, and it's not. It's likability and, and trust, and uh, I would trust this guy. I'd like to be in a bunker with this guy. And I found out I was better at real life than I was as a, I was better at real life than I was as a, as a student. And this wasn't years later that I figured I'll put all these pieces together. Right now I'm, you know, 19 or 20. 
but uh, I think I was better in the real world than I was as a student, so it was fun. It, it mattered. School was like, oh, I don't want to read this book and do a book report. This is boring, but put me out on the real playing field with real bullets, and uh, it's this is exciting. Wow, so that's great. I mean, you know, it's really interesting. There are a lot of people out there that uh, they're really good at school, but yet they can't hack it in the real world. So it seems like it was the opposite with you. And what do you find would be some of the keys of your success there? And what, why did you succeed when so many others didn't attain your level of success? Well, you talked about abundance and success and all that. That 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 was never the mission. The mission was to just deliver for the guys who trusted you to hire you, to come through for them. I worked really, really hard because the people who, you know, paid me two fifty a week and grabbed me from being a runner to their firm, I'd come in every day and do the best I possibly could for them. It wasn't the goal was never major abundance. The goal was just to do the best I could because my father always gave wake up every single day. My father liked to have a couple scotches at night, but no matter what he did, he would open that door at six in the morning and have his suit on and go to work. And that's the way it is. Um, you just woke up and went to work and did the best you could. And I know wall street has an absolutely horrible reputation because it's just the, the whipping boy, but Actually, the majority of the people down on Wall Street were so like my father. My father was the uh, son of two Greek immigrants that came over on the boat in 1909. He was up in the Bronx, went to do a Clinton High School, and for a summer job, he went down and started in the mailroom at White Weld, and uh, after he finished Manhattan College on his own, he went down and started working with White Weld full-time. Okay. And he started moving up quickly because people liked him and he was a hard worker. It's not the brightest bulb in the package. I just read something that was pretty interesting that said, just a quote, amateurs built the ark, professionals built the Titanic. Who do you want to be in bed with? <laughs> That's great. It's a real just great. regular people. My point is, is Wall Street has such a horrible reputation it's actually why do they have such mostly, a so what made you I mean what I mean there's a you said you identify a horrible reputation I mean there's people watch these Hollywood movies like Wall Street and they watch these other movies where they, it seems to be all about the money it seems to all be about like these boiler room type scenarios but then again you're also revealing another side of it saying no it's like you know I, I worked hard I, I went to to be loyal to the people that are out there um, why do you think that Wall Street got that reputation or why did people perceive the reputation to be so do you feel that um that mentality out there that kind of cutthroat mentality represented a majority of the people that were working in the financial markets on there well because it's the financial markets remember the movie business or just about practically any other business has the same type of you know uh whatever you want to call it, you know, I hate to say cheating because actually I've never, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, we had the SEC, Enforcement, and Stockwatch all looking at every single thing we did. So it is just not, it would never even cross my mind because I was groomed by gentlemen, but it would just never cross our mind to break the rules because you just, you didn't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. So, 
greed, it just got carried away. Not everybody is like that. I mean, not everybody in Hollywood is uh, pretentious and horrible and has Botox. Not every... <laughs> there's bad eggs and good eggs and everything. The majority of the jobs on Wall Street are back office jobs. 80% of them are little back office jobs where people are just trying to get ahead. And it just has a reputation... And deservedly so to a certain extent, there's, you know, crooks, because every uh, business has crooks in it. Are there rules of engagement in Wall Street down there in the, in the financial industry that is different than any other industries in the world? And what do you feel it takes to be successful in Wall Street compared to other industries? Well, it, it's, it's too hard to define. In another great article I read also recently was called When the Smart Guys Came to Wall Street. Um, in this article, I think it was written by some uh, it was in the uh, Economic Times or whatever, uh, that um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, that back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, People came down to Wall Street just to get a job to make a better thing for better situation for their families. By the 80s or 90s, people were figuring out there was a lot of money down there. The people from like Harvard and Yale and all those types of people were coming down to Wall Street. Then all of a sudden you had this invention of all these derivatives of uh, taking uh, securities and bundling them together and selling them as a basket of a mortgage. But for instance, I couldn't explain to you what a derivative or any of that is. My father could never figure We're not smart enough. And the article was called When the Smart Guys Came to Wall Street. We're basically a lunch pail crowd. Um, they kind of shifted a little bit. And um, When the Smart Guys Came to Wall Street is uh, kind of uh, what happened there a little bit. Yeah, it seems like a little interesting. And um, do you, did you ever run into that gentleman, the uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort? Did you ever have any contact and knew anyone who knew that guy? And uh, did, there... no, 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 no. That guy was on Long Island. That was a, first of all, that was a, a, a goofball comedy. That's a boiler room. That's that's not on Wall Street. That's in Long Island. That movie that was set in Long Island. He was with Ella Rothschild, lost his job, went out on Wall Street, set up a room of phones. They called mom and pop and stole their money. That is not. It's just, it's just, I never dealt with the general public. Remember, again, I, I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I dealt with member firms and traded. I never dealt with. I never spoke to the general public. I never talked to the general public. I never used anybody's money but my own or the, the firm's capital. Um, we didn't call anybody or do any of that. We were traders. Okay. And uh, I'm just curious, from when you were in the uh, in the market, then how would you say that things have changed? Well, the whole thing that's changed is now everything's going electronic. Like my job, for instance, is pretty much obsolete because now a computer does what I did. I was a market maker. Stand there, for instance, and I traded. Uh, what did I trade? Deaton Hudson at the time, or Target, or whatever the company was. And I would stand there, and buyers and sellers would come in, and we'd match everybody up, and I'd help keep a fair and orderly market. Now everything just goes into the computer, and the computer does all that. So the human element is gone. Um, there's people who are very upset over that. It was inevitable just throughout every business the computer can do what a person can do. Um but it also has its downside. We had a flash crash a couple of years ago where the market went 500 
uh, down 500 points in one day because everybody had their these traders. And then again, the smart guys, these guys with these algorithms or whatever they do, they're running them in New York and, uh, you know, they're out in California or wherever. They set up their computer and they, they try to beat a thing where an order comes in. It was, again, we don't, I don't, I'm not smart enough to know how they do all that kind of stuff. But since now it is computerized, you can't have more problems because it's not people. It would be that kind of situation would have been caught because it would have been like, wait a minute, how come all these sell orders are pouring you yeah. like crazy? And the brokers wouldn't have been able to get, get them out to the trading post fast enough for it to completely rock, uh, you know, rock the world the way it did. So computers are inevitable. They're good. They're great. They're efficient. But there's also a downside because people have figured out ways. You know, you can sit in. California or wherever and figure out uh, algorithms or whatever they're called and how to get an edge up on how to do something electronically. Again, way past my scope of knowledge. Yeah, and you've gone out and you've done a lot of things. And I'd like to just go, because we touched upon your father a little bit, and if anyone sees, I think we should put a picture of you next to your father on the set because you guys guys look so much alike. And uh, it's, it's great. And I wanted to ask you that what role did your father have in your life in shaping your perspectives, and uh, what did he teach you? Well, he just woke up and went to work every day, and he was a straight shooter. He, he again, not the brightest bulb in the package, but he went down to White Weld, which was an old Waspy firm. I think the son, George Saris, he's the son of a you know, Greek immigrant, so it was actually tough for him to uh, get in there and hang with them. But Jean Cartier, who was a senior partner of White Weld, liked him because when he walked in, my father didn't, you know, kowtow to him. He just kind of just kept his mouth shut and nose to the grindstone and worked and was a straight shooter. And I just can't overemphasize the likability in being a straight shooter, what that can do for you, because those are those are the two biggest keys. So just be what you're saying, that just by being likable, being direct. And we say likable, does that mean like kissing everyone's ass, or does that just mean that, how do you... How do you no, no, likeable? it's one of those... It's a, it's tough to define because people liked my father. That's why they gave him a lot of business because they knew they could trust him. Okay. He was just an average, everyday, self-deprecating, cracked jokes about himself. Just a a good guy who just you could trust him. So if you can trust him, you know, one of his accounts was the New York uh, Retirement Teachers Retirement Fund. Um, and other people. If you can trust somebody, you, you give them a lot of business. You like them. And um, it's just like any other business. If people like you, and there's you no, know, that's one of those intangibles. I'm just well, fortunate. I've known George about 10 years now. And one of the quotes that George told me, I think, when we first started working together, is he said that you can define a, a man by what he does for the person you can do absolutely nothing for him. And I've always taken that quote and I've always remembered that quote and I've, I've applied it to a lot of things that I'm doing in my life. So I was just asking George, if you can elaborate on that, why is it important to, to do you know what you can do for your fellow human being who can't help you out at all? Why, is, why was that important to you or is important to you? Well, I can't say that I do it be- because I read it somewhere, it's just been pointed out to me. It's that it doesn't cost a dime to be nice to somebody. Okay. Um, you know, the true test of a character of a man is how he treats someone who can do nothing for him. I just don't. You know my personality. I'm not a boaster, so I guess it's difficult for me to stand here and say anything. But 
lying in the in the sidewalk or when I was in New York on Ninth Avenue, Gypsy who slept right in the street, I treat him the same way as I would somebody somebody else. Everybody's the same. It's there's no difference. Well, one of the Reason George and I worked a lot on this New York Underground Comedy Festival, and then you basically you have people stay at his apartment. He had this uh, nice, great apartment on 60th Street, and he would have all these comedians that were coming in from out of town. They would stay at his place, and he was just uh, you know helping all these people out. And you know you didn't have to do it. I mean, you you you're retired. You're retired in your 40s. You could have been on a beach somewhere, and yet you decided to take on this high stress, high challenge position where there was no guarantee of any financial return, no even guarantee that people were going to even say thank you, but you did it anyway, and you made a you know a big impact. And I was just kind of always been curious, of why did you do that? Why did you take such a big risk and work with comedians of all people and go into comedy of all places? Well, after I left Wall Street in 2003, I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do next. I always liked comedy, and I wanted to try my hand at stand-up comedy. So I kind of went down to the clubs and went waited right online, just like anybody else, paid my $3, got up on stage, I did open mics for a little while, and had a lot of fun. It was fun. I have more fun in the trenches. The fun and the action is actually in the trenches, not in the ivory tower. So I'd go down, and I built up a camaraderie with the other comedians on the way up, and we had a lot of fun. And I realized being a stand-up comic wasn't for me, but I made some great friends that I was like, you know what? Why don't I stay in this somehow? You know what? I'll come up with a festival or something. We'll raise money for charities. We'll have hospital shows. We'll have library shows. That's just what it morphed into. Um, let's have this. Let's have that. You were you saw all the hard work and uh, what we were doing and raising money for the troops and all different kinds of things. And uh, it's just fun being in the grind out with the real people. Not uh, out on the golf course. I would rather be. Uh, I'd rather be out. You know. No, I just you know I thought it was kind of funny you mentioned that you were wearing the Hawaiian shirt and shorts, and I think that that was I don't know I guess for like those seven years that that was the George Saris brand. You know, talk about saying what kind of brand do you have like George Saris, and you, I mean, you probably could have been wearing Armani suits walking around, but you're like, no, you know, I would have preferred the uh, the Hawaiian shirt and the shorts. And I just thought that was kind of cool because you were easily identifiable anywhere during the festival. Well, after you know, well after wearing a pinstripe suit for. Uh, 20 years, I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm wearing the most comfortable <laughs> clothes there are, and I couldn't care. You know, people know. know. People, I'm like, I don't want to impress anybody. I don't have a watch. I don't have anything. I still don't spend money. I don't have a, anything. <laughs> I'm still scared to death of, I'm just. Are you scared of death? Are you scared of death of spending money? Uh, I, I kind of have a little bit of that, yeah. Okay. Um, not that I hoard it, it's just, it's just, <laughs> I'm not a spender. I mean, a lot of people, that's interesting, because in a country, it seems to be a lot of people are, are spending money, and they're going into debt, they're, they're buying things they don't, they don't, they can't afford, and I'm just curious, but, um, you know, in our world today, there are millions, if not billions of people that are struggling financially, and yet only a small percentage of the population really achieves, you know, great financial abundance where they can just be completely well off. I was wondering if you could please explain why you feel that only maybe a small percentage of people will ever really attain true financial stability, true financial, um, I'm sorry, not stability, but true financial comfort on a very large level. And I was curious as to why you feel you're able to attain such a um, a substantial amount of financial abundance in a very short period of time. Like, What was the the method to your madness besides being, you know, a likable guy? Uh, uh, 
again, a very difficult, you know, I just saw 20 feet from stardom and they asked Sting, you know, why you? Why not the person 20 feet away? And Sting was kind of like, there's no answer for that, really. You know, I just did the best that I could. I tried to be so good I couldn't be ignored. And then you can't put your finger on, you know, why you, why this, um, why that. Um, it's just so difficult. Well, I mean, is, is there a mentality, though? Is there a mentality? I mean, you, you, you're mentioning something, you're like, um, that you, you did your job very well, and you were passionate about it, and that you were likable. So, you feel that those... The only logic would dictate, you, would, would dictate, I guess, is then that's one of the keys. And, I mean, I, you have to say luck, because I guess you have to say luck. And were you, you know, I was born in your shell, not in... South America or Alaska, the North Pole. There's so many variables that we don't know about, or maybe uh, the past life. Maybe I'm being rewarded for something I did in the past life, or something like that. I don't know. I do. It's not the type of. I'm like a lunch pail kind of guy. I just kind of wake up and go to work, or wake up and work on things, and things just seem to happen out of that. I'm down here in Austin where I came to just take a break from being in New York my whole life. I started doing photography, uh, getting uh, trying to get a little better, trying to get a little better. And now Discovery Channel asked me if I'd like, because a friend who I helped up in New York during the comedy festival, Chuck Chazar, asked me if I'd like to take behind-the-scenes photos for the new show Staging Heroes coming out because they're coming down to Texas. So it's interesting that seven years ago I left there, and all the people that I left there actually moved up the ladder so they're in charge of things now, and they're calling again. So um, it's just interesting how things work, because you said we didn't make any money with the festival or ever this or that, and it was never the intention. Well, it seems to come when you do the right thing, and you're a straight shooter. So do you feel that at uh, this point, or a lot of times in your life, that you've been in the flow of things, that you really are not uh, struggling or pushing against something that, that can't be? Do you feel that a lot of things that you do are generally done with, um, at, they're more labors of love that manifest into you know financial successes, as opposed to things where you have to struggle very hard with? Do you find a lot of things you're doing? Oh, everything's, a, everything's an incredibly hard struggle, but... It's one of those that struggle, 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 and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's easy. Things are easy. You know, I was just giving that advice to somebody else the other day. It's always darkest before the dawn. Just if you keep being like, you know, some people on Facebook are always, you know, typing in how miserable they are, how everything's going their way. I said, I'm kind of like, if, you know, a diamond becomes a diamond because so much pressure is put on it that, you know, all of a sudden everything starts going your way. I don't know enough about that, but all you can do is all you can do. And what is that? Tell the truth. Be a straight shooter. And again, with the likability, which I cannot put my finger on it, I mean, I think you'd have to say, you would have to answer that, you know, why you took to me and were influenced by me. I can't answer that. Right, and um, you're the one who gives me way too much credit for what how far you've gone. Oh no, I, I'm, I'm going to I'll tell you the audience all the time. Yeah, you were you were very uh, instrumental. Um, you know, a very instrumental, positive influence. It's not a zero sum game. Everybody can win, and and winning, I don't. I mean, it's happiness. It's not money. It's being happy, you know, money just 
money just you can be miserable in, in nicer places. Money means nothing. Those are just that just sits in the bank. That's not happiness. My wife has been. I helped my wife build a path in the backyard today, and you know it's beautiful and um, happiness is the bottom line. That great abundance. You got, I, great abundance was never a goal. Or and you don't need great abundance. Great abundance of love would be great. Great abundance of uh, you know your children and all that. But the financial it, that that comes way low, and um, that shouldn't be in anybody's goal. That comes when you do the right thing. Okay. And uh, what are your thoughts about uh, spirituality? Is there any particular religion or moral code that you tend to follow? And uh, you know. Uh, yes, actually, well, back when I lived in Westchester, one of my good friends who I met because he came down to the stock exchange because he did fundraisers for at the uh, Franciscan Friar, but one of my dearest friends was Brother Dennis Sinnott of uh, the Graymore Monastery, and he used to go on retreats there. I was raised Roman Catholic. My mother, my father was Greek Orthodox. Usually you're raised whatever your um, mother is, so that's why Roman Catholic. Not the best Roman Catholic in the world, um, but I've read a lot of you know being on Wall Street and uh, uh, being under a ton, ton, ton of stress uh, uh, causes you to you know it's like when you're you know in trouble with the law, all of a sudden you're praying, saying or saying, or someone sick. It's the same kind of thing. So I've read a lot of uh, Jack Cornfield, thick. Not, I can't say the Vietnamese monk's name uh, correctly. Um, Ram Dass. Um, a lot of the, all that stuff that uh, I love. And I read it so many times that I haven't read it in a number of years, but I still remember a lot of it, and it's in me. And St. Francis of Assisi, and just a lot of a lot of great spiritual stuff, um, Eastern, Western, everything. So it, it, you, you say yeah, your philosophy is incorporating a lot of different things? Is it incorporating religion? Is it incorporating like, is there any dominant um, spirituality you incorporate into your life? Or themes? No. No. Just it's all universally kind of you know. So like what, when I'm asking, what are some of your things? Do you just believe in peace and love or do you believe in, uh, in a God that is outside of you? Do you believe in um, that you'll go to hell if you don't go to organized religion or churches? Like, what are some of the principles, would you say? Kind of like, okay, I don't go to church. I'm, uh, I, have a, I have a feeling God's up there pretty happy with how I've conducted myself down here. Um, back in the late 80s, while I was on Wall Street, I got involved in drugs and alcohol because you're in your 20s and you're, you know, you live at home still in dad's basement, so all the married guys go home, and all the the kids who don't, don't go out and end up and get in trouble. And I was doing uh, alcohol, cocaine, everything was falling from the sky back in the 80s. And then one day, around 26 years old, I said, you know what, that's, that's it. I'm so, look, can you elaborate a little bit more? What kind of trouble did you get into, and what was your moment of uh, clarity when you, when you stopped? I didn't hit, like, a, rock, a classic rock bottom Oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, I lost my job. I was a functioning alcoholic and all that stuff. Actually, if it wasn't for cocaine, I would never be an alcoholic because I hate alcohol because it puts you to sleep. But cocaine fell from the sky, so <laughs> I got involved in that. And with my type of personality, that, that was just, you know, that would put me in God's country. But then I woke up one day 
around 26, and I heard some people talking about me, kind of like, oh, he's a spouse. And it was like, oh, I'm a spouse? Okay, just for that. 1988, that's it, I'm done. I am done. New Year's resolution, 1988, I'm done. And now I haven't had a drink or a drug in 25 years. Wow. And five years after I quit, it took about two or three years to, uh, for, it just, people want instant results nowadays. It took two or three years to get used to it. And then all of a sudden, in 1992, things just flipped. Uh, you could flip a switch and everything started going right and well. And um, I was so upset that I spent so many years wasted drinking. I didn't call in sick for close to 10 years because I, that was my way of saying, you know what, this is well, it's the way I am, but... I got to I got to pay back for wasting all that. And uh, so at 26, I quit everything and just went home after work. And so I've had my ups and downs just like everybody else. And uh, you've got to get through those downs. Those downs are bad. Yeah, you've accomplished a lot, but you've also endured an incredible amount, incredible amount of stress. And I was wondering where you think people should draw the line when chasing their dreams if they are also enduring an incredible amount of stress. And do you think there's a point? where a dream should is not worth it if it's causing you so much detrimental damage to your health or you're just stressed out all the time? Like, when do, where do you see the uh, the line to be drawn? Absolutely. First of all, the answer is absolutely. I do not subscribe to this don't quit, never give up on your dreams. No, quit. And go do something, and you never know. You're probably, that might be where you're going to do great. So this don't quit or never give up on your dreams thing well, maybe that's not where you're, maybe you're not supposed to be climbing a tree. Maybe you have your ladder against the wrong tree. I'm not big on that. Never give up. Never quit. You always see everybody posting that all over the place. No. Quit and go try over here. Lean your ladder against this thing. And next thing you know, you're great at this. This is your calling. So I'm not huge on never give up on your dreams. That one kind of, I kind of have a small problem with that one. And that's just my personal, I don't know on the mountain. I'm just telling you what I personally think. I wouldn't. I don't try to force my opinion on anybody. But like you said, undue stress, this and that, that and this. Well, you know, I'm gonna give all my dreams. Never give up on your dream. Uh-huh. Is, the cemetery's filled with those people. <laughs> awesome. And George, uh, when you pass from this world, what gifts do you feel that you will have left the people on the planet behind you? And how do you want to be remembered? Well, uh, well, that's for you to say. What the, I mean, I think it's caused a lot of laughs, had a lot of fun, made a lot of friends, helped a lot of people, did the best I could. It didn't, you know, none of us are saints, but for argument's sake, why cheat, steal, screw anybody big time, uh, never got arrested, never, never caused a detriment to society anywhere, never was a hindrance, never, you know, this is all within reason if I thought hard enough. I you know, all a pain in the neck somewhere, but you know, just kept my nose clean, help people, and you know, it was nice for everybody from the doorman to the guy in the gutter to the guy in the boardroom or whatever. What the world? Well, nobody gets out of here alive, and it doesn't cost a dime to be nice. And that's what I, some things I try to tell people, but it's like everything else, telling kids not to do drugs. You have to learn for yourself. Um, it's tough. There's so many help, self-help books out there, and a lot of them are great, and a lot of spiritual reading. But you have to you have to eat it before you 
gain the wisdom. You can't read it. Some people can. Some people can, but most people, I'm different. Right. So what am I, what did I leave and what am I going to be remembered for? Oh, I don't even think like that. I just, I'm sitting out here just wondering who I'm going to shoot next in photography and looking at pictures. What if I try this? What if I try that? <laughs> I just, I just did the best that I could. And how I'm remembered, I, I don't, it's nothing I ever think of. George, that was really great. George Saris, thank you so much for being with us uh, t- tonight. And uh, is there a website people can go to to learn more about you? Uh, no, well, there's George Saris NYSC. That's where I have a lot of my photography. George Saris NYSC. I don't really, I'm kind of freelancing at the moment, like Discovery Channel asked me to shoot behind the scenes photos for Saving Heroes, which is. Uh, they're going to go around the country. Nikki K from CNN, and uh, they're going to go around the country and help war veterans and give them uh, prosthetic legs and build them houses. And I'm going to shoot backstage uh, behind-the-scenes footage for that. And um, Dan Puglisi has a record out. I'm helping him with publicity. And I just finished a big duet to Austin, Texas. They asked me to help uh, them do do videos for their uh, record. So I just kind of take my little projects and do them and do my photography, and I'm happy. Uh, I don't need to be a New York rule in the world. I'm down here in Austin in my little 15-foot uh, studio here with two lights and just happy as a clam. George Saris, that was really great. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Joining us now for another perspective on Mr. George Saris is globally renowned psychic medium, Miss Carrie O'Connor. You can learn more about Miss Carrie O'Connor by going to her website at carrieoconnor.com. Miss O'Connor, what can you reveal to us about Mr. George Saris? I loved this man's energy. I saw him as this humble soul that he has very multi-dimensional hats or a lot of hats as far as Wall Street all the things that he's done but Ryan he comes from his heart he really comes from that heart space and a lot of people's journey in this lifetime is to get out of their heads out of their emotion and come from the heart but this guy, guy is hardwired to come from his heart I love that he's passionate about follow your passion do what you love love what you do and don't be afraid to leave a profession if it doesn't um, give you joy anymore I love this guy wow and what is, do you know how many lifetimes he's had so far? Or is this, is he a newer soul, would you say, to Earth? I don't see him as a newer soul. I see You just said that, and I saw 123, uh, but I don't see all of them on this lifetime. He's definitely had different lifetimes on the Syrian planet in different dimensions. So he's comfortable here. I'd say a good 12 good ones that are here. Maybe even 24 it just went up to. But he's got, had many connections to the Pleiadian energy, to the... Searing energy, other dimensions, and with many lifetimes there. Okay, and uh, this uh, lifetime he's acquired a substantial amount of financial abundance. Do you think that's something that was a, that's been a constant in his previous lives, or is this one where he's learned to manifest in this life that he didn't have in a previous life? I see that he came in learning about abundance. When you just said that question, all of a sudden I saw him looking like he came in energetically pregnant, filled with this money lesson. So this lifetime in particular was about abundance. And the way he's holding it, it doesn't define them, Ryan, where some people, when I look in the energy field, they're all about their money and they, like, show it off. It's like they put it out in front of their energy fields where they're so connected to it. It doesn't define them. It doesn't make it change who he is. 
and that's what allows him to experience abundance because he doesn't hold it so tightly. I know he said he was afraid of spending money, but he's got a, a balanced energy field when it comes to giving and receiving money. Oh, that's great. And do you see any particular uh, guides around him or any actually any ancestors or deceased relatives that could be around him, could be guiding with him? I just saw a, a grand, actually the great-grandfather coming in with him, and it's really interesting. I just saw the lady energy around him as far as like the, the Virgin Mary Quan, Quan Yen energy around him. He's a very balanced guy. Okay. That's fantastic. And uh, lastly, do you think that he's going to finish up right now? Or do you think he's got a couple more lifetimes to live uh, on Earth? I think this is it. I just saw the end of the chapter, and he's going on to other dimensions. This earthly dimension is changing a lot, and so it's going to be different when a lot more people incarnate. But I'm watching this as the end of the chapter is on this earth plane. Okay. That's awesome. And Ms. Carrie O'Connor, that was a really phenomenal analysis. I want to thank you. And please go to Ms. Carrie O'Connor's website at carrieoconnor.net. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you, Ryan. Joining us now for another perspective on the life of Mr. George Saris is globally respected psychic medium, Miss Laura Lynn. We can learn about Miss Laura Lynn by going to her website at angelreader.net. Miss Lynn, what can you tell us about Mr. George Saris? Pretty fascinating. When you look at the continuum that he brought into his life experience from New York Stock Exchange to comedian, I mean, that's how opposite is that? That was just yeah. amazing and funny. I, I felt that was very yeah. funny myself. Um, I enjoyed the fact that he, you know, brought in the minimist uh, perspective, you know, living simply, not having to live in a posh way, even though he is sounds to be very, you know, um, abundant as far as, you know, his money's come. But, you know, he has earned it and he is he's being respectful of it and, He's learned a lot from the past, and that's what I'm. That's what I'm going to start speaking about now. What I was capturing about him, there was one part of the interview. He says, "Well, maybe it's all about luck. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe that's what brought you know brought my life to be." But what I am getting is that he brought a secret into this world from another life that he lived before, and that's the secret from this is that he learned you got to give it away to keep it, and he did this in a very large way in the past where he was a humble farmer. He seemed to be an intuitive farmer from what I was capturing. He seemed to know what the was, what nature was going to do before it happened and where other people's crops would fail. His seemed to always be plentiful. And what he would do is he would bring the food from the crops to the community to make sure that all the other farmers were fed throughout the other throughout the seasons where they could not grow, and he would receive gifts and trades from the people, never asking, but they would always make sure that he was taken care of. He was very respected in the community, very loved, and very humble. He just he was just a very beautiful man. So he brought that into this world now in a different way through maybe education, through through knowledge. Um, and also through doing service. I feel like he has not really expressed how much he has given away. I feel like he keeps that very secret. Um, and when I'm saying given away, I'm talking about through maybe charitable philanthropy uh, causes that really captures his heart. I, I feel like he has something that's really brilliant that the world really needs. Oh, and uh, what do you think his life was before this one? Well, that's where I was talking about the farmer um, in probably 1800. 
I didn't capture any other lives, Ryan. That one was so big well, and so beautiful. Do you think so that beautiful. he could be a newer spirit that's out here? Maybe that he's beginning his life cycle, that he, has, he doesn't have a lot of ancient history? or, or... Perhaps. Perhaps there are new new souls among us, and maybe that's why I didn't capture it. But the soul that I captured, or his part of the soul that I captured prior to this lifetime was certainly a big one. Wow, that's really great. And I'm just kind of curious, you see, are there any... Um trajectories are about his next life? Do you think he's going to be here? Um, do you think that he's what is setting up his next life to be? Yeah, I think he's excited about what what life experiences has to offer. And I do see him writing, bringing his knowledge in a bigger way, uh, being a little bit more in the public you know, uh, media. I, I feel like, you know, I don't know... I. I also feel like this next lifetime is going to be experiencing what it feels like to be female and to bring really interesting knowledge to to culture. Got it. Miss Laura Lynn, thank you so much for that incredible analysis. Uh, Mr. George Saris. And to learn, you are welcome. You. And to learn more about Miss Laura Lynn, please go to her website at angelreader.net. Thank you so much, Miss Lynn. What is Mr. Saris's place amongst the stars? Joining us now is the Astro Phenom, our own astrologer, Miss Constance Stellis. Learn more about Miss Stellis by going to her website at constancestellis.com. Miss Stellis, what can you say about Mr. Cyrus? Well, first of all, we are fellow Greeks, uh, half and half, he and I, and we are fellow Librans, so I'm very predisposed to uh, to his chart and his sign Libra. But what is interesting, uh, in addition to his sun sign being Libra, uh, his moon is also in the sign of Libra. This is an interesting sign because it's the pivot of the zodiac. By that I mean it's halfway through. And Libra is the sign of relationships and balance. And everybody says, oh, yeah, Libra, they love balance. Well, you work your whole life to find that balance. And in the case of George Saris, he has a great deal of talent, ability, and energy to balance. Um, His uh, most, well, he's got two planets in Libra, but he has three planets and his ascendant in Scorpio. So this is the uh, devilish angel or the angel-devil combo because charm is uh, in, uh, you know, in abundance and also drive and focus in his own way. It also, I think, is the source of, let's say, his healing work, although that's not his quote-unquote profession. Uh, as I listened to the interview, his basic outlook on life is uh, easy breezy with focus. And um, I think that in and of itself, that is very uh, healing. He has enormous personal restlessness to to do many things. And uh, evidently, he has done many things. And um, I noticed in the interview that he stressed likability as a really important characteristics for kind of uh, the road to success in any form. And I would say that likability is the most cherished uh, quality of a Libran because 
relationships are so important that if you're kind of not getting the good vibes from the people around you, you feel very bad and you have to rectify that uh, that uh, situation by kind of evening up the scales. Um, underneath the likability is also very strong drive. Um, we also see, I know he mentioned that he um, had um, read a lot of religious spiritual texts. Um, with the 12th house being emphasized in his chart, there is uh, a suggestion of past lives as religious people or a religious person or a seeker. doesn't have to be in any particular domination, I mean denomination, sorry, uh, but very uh, strong spiritual component to his life. And a very simple idea of what you put out, you get back. And those scales in his personality are, are quite well balanced. Um, he's coming up to a, a very good year career-wise, whatever he decides to do. Um, whether it's a, another comedy festival or I know he's doing photography, but I think that this year will um, be very expansive in terms of his uh, professional um, uh, accomplishments. But listening to him, I think the combination of kind of uh, grassroots uh, good advice and and um, charm is is uh, is a very valuable thing, um, and he, he said, "Well, that's just the way it is." Uh, so um, he has likability in great abundance. <laughs> uh, that's great. And do you feel that his chart is destiny? I mean, sorry, what do you feel his previous life might have been before this one, astrologically speaking? Um, well, I think that he, as I said, he probably was involved with religious people or spiritual people. He may have also been a lawyer, <laughs> which doesn't sound very spiritual, but that um, um, uh, search for the truth uh, is uh, very much um, part of his uh, makeup. And he may have been a person who either was harmed or harmed other people by gossip backbiting and he shows no trace of doing that this time around okay miss conscious the astro phenom that was a great analysis and to learn more about miss conscious Stellis, please go to our website at constancestellus.com thank you so much constance my pleasure joining us now for another perspective on the life of mr george saras is globally respected tech medium and empath Ms. Lisa Kaza. And you can learn about, more about Ms. Kaza by going to her website at Lisa Kaza, L A S A Kaza, C A Z A dot com. Ms. Kaza, what can you tell us about Mr. Saris? Well, George, um, I find he is an extremely um, trustworthy and loyal spirit. The very first thing that I was shown, though, was the most recent past life that he had. Um, he was born into a very well-off family financially, and to be quite frankly, aristocratic English family. And the time period, I believe it was King George was still in reign, because Queen Elizabeth was still a little tiny wee baby. So um, he was born into that time, into a very wealthy aristocratic English family. So in being born into that family, he was given his wealth. 
it, everything was just handed to him by birth. And so in doing so, like he didn't really have true appreciation for anything or what the real, you know, he didn't value money as what he does in this lifetime. He ha- He wasn't very happy either in being wealthy. So in crossing into this lifetime, before he incarnated, his spirit decided that while I still, of course, want to attain the goal of financial success or stability, but the way I'm going to do it is I don't want to be handed anything. I want to be treated just like any other guy. And this is what he's done. He he wanted to get his hands dirty and work hard and go with the flow and go with his passion, what his passion was leading him. And as a result of that, like he can't understand you know, why him? Why was he the one picked out of so many? Well, it, the reason for that is because the energy that he emanated, he wasn't all about the money, plain and simple. And people can feel that. People can feel energy off of other people. And this is what he exuded. And it was full of trust and full of honesty. And that's why people could trust him. He wasn't out just for their money or to, you know, um, grab whatever he could behind the backs. He wasn't like that. He was very trustworthy, very loyal. And he worked his way. He definitely did. So in doing so, now he does enjoy these the little things in life. He appreciates more. And yeah, he's he's attained that goal for the financial su- success. So all of that combined, he's already, like a, this is very rare that some people can say this, but his spirit has actually now satisfied with with its quest for this lifetime. Okay, do you think that uh, he's accomplished everything he wants to accomplish in this life and the rest is kind of like maybe a breeze or he's kind of relaxing and just enjoying the fruits of his labor? That, that's the sense that I was getting, yeah. Okay. His, his spirit has fulfilled the main its main objectives. He put himself through hell you know, working himself to the bone, um, being the common man in this lifetime. He w- he wanted that experience, needed it, but at the same time still wanted to achieve that goal of financial success and freedom. He got it. Now, the rest of it, whether it's, uh, you know, he also has the desire for unconditional love and freedom. He's attained those goals too. So now at this point in his life, he, this is how he can now teach and, and speak and, and write and teach others, and it's to he's he's to enjoy the rest of his life I now. Think he'd be a great great speaker, um, but at the same time, I do yeah, too. He really, he's, he's got a tremendous amount of passion. So much to teach. So he does, and he like he is a classic example for people on how to achieve their goals and their purpose. When when you follow a path with such passion. And well, that's ultimately that's how you find your purpose. Great, Miss Lisa Caza. That was a great analysis of Mr. George Saris. And to learn more about Miss Caza, please go to her website at Lisa L A S A Caza C A Z A dot com. Thank you so much, Miss Caza. Oh, thank you, Ryan. All right, that concludes tonight's episode of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Thank you so much for our great guests and for our unbelievable virtues, Miss Terry O'Connor. Ms. Laura Lynn, Ms. Lisa Caza, and Ms. Constance Ellis. 
to learn more about our show, please visit our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Until the next time we meet again, my friends, wishing upon you infinite peace, love, and beers. Have an unbelievable rest of the night, and thank you so much for joining us. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.